scripture text from this morning, which is from 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to read from the first 24 verses of 1 Kings chapter 12. Moving past Solomon, who died in our passage last week, unto his son Rehoboam, and a sad episode in the history of God and his people. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We recognize that there is no room for pride in the preaching it, as you can even use a donkey to speak your word, and there's no pride in the receiving of it because you preached your word even to the men of Nineveh, but there is joy in the preaching and joy in the hearing as this is your word. And so we pray that you would write it upon our hearts, give us the grace that we need to receive your word properly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings, starting in chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men, who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, Come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 
180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. There's a great kid's song by a, a kid's song writer named Jamie Souls, and you can use it to learn the kings of Israel and Judah, and I'm going to suspend my number one rule of preaching, and I'm going to sing just a little bit of it, not the whole thing, lest you all get up and leave, but just a little bit of the song. It says, Saul was first, David second, Solomon was third, then the kingdom split in two, because Rehoboam was a nerd. It's clever, though I'm not sure that Rehoboam was so much a nerd as he was a fool. Solomon's God-given wisdom, which he revoked himself or rebuked himself in his old age, doesn't seem to have worn off at all on Rehoboam, his son. And as we come into these opening uh, verses, into the opening scene of this passage, we come to a, a time when Rehoboam has come to a, a mutually agreed upon place in the land of Israel, and he's come there to become king. You see, David had worn two crowns. He wore the crown of the kingdom of Judah, and he wore that crown for seven years before he was also crowned king of the kingdom of Israel. So David reigned over a united monarchy, and now his grandson Rehoboam needs to come to a place where he will also have both of these crowns placed on his head after the death of his father, Solomon. So now there needs to be a crowning ceremony, and, and of course Rehoboam is the obvious choice to become the next king of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah. David was a beloved king, and Solomon was a, a magnificent king, and so it was only natural that Rehoboam would be next. Certainly he expected that he would be next, and so all Israel gathers, but the northern tribes come with, with perhaps one surprising caveat. They, they essentially ask Rehoboam for what seems to be a simple request. Just take it a little bit easier on us. You see, Solomon had been a prolific builder. He'd had a mighty army and had a very big government, and all of those things came with a cost. And if you read carefully through the first 11 chapters of Kings, it seems as though oftentimes the greatest part of that burden falls upon the northern kingdom, and Judah sometimes gets off a little bit easy. You see, Solomon had used a number of things that were unpopular. He used a conscripted labor force. He didn't make the Israelites slaves. He compensated them for their work, but they also weren't free not to work. For four months out of the year, one month on and two months off, the Israelites were forced, the men were forced to go off to whatever building project Solomon had embarked on then and go and work without choice. It was, it was a, con a conscripted labor force. He also had a conscripted military force, very much similar to, a, to the modern draft. And then he also taxed the people heavily in each of the districts. His government needed a lot of resources to keep the, the grease and the bureaucracy there, and so he, 
he required this great tax burden upon the people. And you can see a recipe for resentment in being forced to labor, being forced to go to war, and being forced to pay heavy taxes. The Israelites say, no, it was the Lord who made us free. We're not a kingdom like the other kings. Our kings aren't tyrants. Our kings are supposed to be servants of the people. And so they come with this one simple request, lighten the load just a touch and we will gladly serve you. And Solomon, or Rehoboam rather, son of Solomon, seemingly wisely asks for three days to consider the request. He probably was surprised. This was meant to be a mere formality. He probably had some sense of indignation. How, how dare these, these underlings come and make a request of me at this, my coronation ceremony. And so he takes three days to think about it, and, and he's going to consult with two different groups of people, the first of which being the elders of the kingdom of Israel, elders who had served his son Solomon during Solomon's reign. And these elders offer wise counsel. They, they say, give a little now to get a lot more later. These elders seem to have recognized that what, what held together the kingdom during Solomon's day was Solomon's own reputation and stature and magnificence, and that Rehoboam has none of that. And so they seem to judge the situation rightly, that there is some need to compromise with these crowds as they come here to present this request to Rehoboam. But Rehoboam seems to reject their advice before it's even offered. And so he goes and he consults with the youth group. And he says to them, he says to them, what would you advise me? And you, you can recognize here that there, is, that there is an implied identification with the young men that he had grown up with. Because he, he says to the elders, if you notice, how would you advise me? But he says to the young men, how should we answer these people. Rehoboam is inclined to take their advice even before they ask for it. So the young men that he had grown up with, his peers, they, they give him some pretty simple advice, which you can sum up by saying, put your man pants on. Get tough. Show them who's boss. If you give a little bit now, you're going to lose all your authority. It's time, to, it's time to get tough. And they even seem to get a little vulgar about it. They say, tell him that my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. You recognize later, Rehoboam doesn't include that part, probably because he realizes it's vulgar. The, the Hebrew literally reads, my little one is thicker than my father's waist. It has a euphemistic meaning for a different male organ than a finger somewhere near to the waist. So they're vulgar. Then they get nasty about it as well. They say, you tell them, my father scourged you with whips. I'll scourge you with scorpions. Scorpions not being the stinging insects, scorpions being whips that had nails or pieces of glass or iron in the end of it meant to rip apart flesh. And so Rehoboam takes their advice. He rejects the advice of the elders, and he takes the advice of the young men, and in doing so, he grossly misjudges the situation and its seriousness. He seems to think that this crowd comes to him in no position to ask for any kind of concession. After all, he is Rehoboam, son of Solomon the Magnificent, 
grandson of David the Great. How dare these people come to my coronation party and reign on my royal parade with their petty requests. But these people are no mere underlings. They are a people ready and willing to revolt if Rehoboam will not give a little bit to make their lives just a little bit easier. So Rehoboam misjudges the situation, and it's a failure in judgment that is going to echo down the halls of Israel's history for hundreds of years. And then, if you can imagine, Rehoboam makes it even worse. Because Rehoboam decides these people aren't serious. When they say, back to your tents, Israel, look after your own house, David, he says, oh, they can't be serious. So he, he assigns Adoniram to go and talk to them. Now, the thing that they resented most of all things was being made to work. And Adoniram is the man who was in charge of making them work. It's the, it's the point of greatest resentment, and he sends exactly the, the last person he should send. He should send some kind of a, a wise counselor, some kind of a, a peacemaker, but instead, he sends this incendiary figure, and not surprisingly, they stone him. And Rehoboam makes a narrow escape to go back home, and the kingdom is divided. You know, whereas Solomon received wisdom from God. Here, Rehoboam, his son, rebukes wisdom from God. I suppose there are quite a few things we might say, and we'll say a few of them in just a few moments, but it's very convenient for the preacher when the author of Scripture makes the principal application himself. And we see the principal application of the passage here in verse 15. The author says, So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. So this is exactly as God has said it was going to be. At the end of his life, Solomon forsakes the Lord. He begins to worship idols. He even makes altars for idols. And the Lord says to him and to Jeroboam, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your hands and out of the hands of your son. And for David's sake, it will not happen in your own day. But I'm going to rip the kingdom apart and away and give it to somebody else. And this is exactly what happens in this passage. I, I know that for some of you, the passage last week was difficult because we grew up with Solomon flannel graphs, where Solomon is this great, mighty, magnificent, all-wise king. We never hear the negative parts of Solomon. We hear about his wisdom. We hear about his treasure. But we never hear about the end of Solomon's life where he was an apostate. So I want to try to put this in modern language that we might understand to recognize just how repulsive the end of Solomon's life was so we can understand why the Lord wanted to rip the kingdom away from him and give it to somebody else. So Solomon worshipped false gods, and Solomon made altars to false gods, but not just any false gods, but false gods who required child sacrifice. So, so Solomon made the altars where children would be sacrificed. Okay, so this is, the, this is the modern equivalent of going to the mosque on Friday, building a Planned Parenthood on Saturday, and dying on Sunday. 
Now, if a man like that, if his family asked me to preach his funeral, I would not get up there and say, this man was a saint. Right? We would recognize the gravity of the sin. And so we need to recognize the gravity of Solomon's sin and see they leave every year when we have this service. That's like five years running. We need to see, we need to see the gravity of Solomon's sin and recognize God's justice in doing precisely what he said he was going to do, which is to take the kingdom out of his hand. So the Lord, the main point here is the Lord keeps his word. He promised Solomon and Jeroboam he would do this. He promised David that he would discipline his sons if they sinned. And going back even further, right in the heart of the second commandment, back in Exodus 20, the Lord had said this, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Solomon had rejected and by his idolatry hated the Lord. And so his sins are going to be visited upon his children, Rehoboam and his sons. This is a case study in the relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will, isn't it? You have God keeping his word through the foolishness of a man. So first let's look at Rehoboam. He's a fool. Could God make him a fool? He was a fool all in his own right. God didn't make him wise, but God is under no compulsion to give any sinner any of his good gifts. And so Rehoboam is foolish all in his own right and bears the responsibility for the, the breaking of the kingdom in this point. And we have no right or any biblical basis to assign fault for this to the Lord. But then look at the Lord's side of the equation. The Lord doesn't make Rehoboam a fool but he certainly uses Rehoboam's foolishness for his purposes. Rehoboam's foolishness didn't please the Lord. It was still sin. Yet the Lord was strong enough and sovereign enough to use Rehoboam's foolishness to keep his word and to move his plan for his people forward. So what does the, what does the author derive from? And what does he communicate to us here in verse 15? The point is that, that God is sovereign even over the splitting of his own kingdom. That this is not something that comes apart from the Lord. God is in control here. Was there sin involved? Yes. Was it ugly sin? Yes. Did God enjoy the sin? No. Was God out of control because of the sin? No. Was this according to the plan and purposes of God? Yes. We have to be able to embrace all of those truths to make sense not only of the story in the scriptures, but also of our own lives. And I wonder if we look out across the landscape of the world and all of its various kingdoms and kings, I, I wonder if we look at those kingdoms and kings with the same confidence in God's sovereignty as the author of the book of Kings looked at the, time, the world in his time. I appreciated something that Ralph Davis said. He said, big men, especially royal arrogant ones, are simply little servants in the Lord's hand. That brings comfort. But then we go on, the account ends in, in a rather strange or odd note. Look with me at verses 21 to 24. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 
180,000 fighting men to make war against the house of Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to the whole house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says, do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. Another mystery man, a mystery man comes to Jeroboam, now a mystery man comes to Rehoboam and the people and he tells them to go home. The man is called a man of God. That's a term we're going to see over and over and over again in the book of Kings and it always refers to prophets who speak for the Lord. And this particular prophet says to Rehoboam, put the chariots away. Take the saddle off the horses. Tell the men to go home. Take a royal chill pill. And let me do what I'm already done. This is from me. I don't want you to concern with it. And then surprisingly, maybe even oddly, Rehoboam listens. I say surprisingly or oddly because Rehoboam hasn't done anything right the whole time yet. And it isn't very much like the kings of Israel and Judah to decide to listen to the word of the Lord after they've already disobeyed it. But Rehoboam does. It seems here at the, at the end of the episode, Rehoboam ends with some kind of wisdom and then some sort of peace, however temporary it may be, enters into the situation. And the Lord's word spares his kingdom from utterly destroying itself in a bloody civil war. So what do we get here? We could derive a few lessons. I'll say two that aren't really so much the main point, then we'll dwell mostly on the main point. The first lesson we could, we could speak about is who to ask for advice when you need it. Uh, I jokingly said that Rehoboam asked the youth group for advice. That's not really entirely true. Rehoboam was 40, the youth serving him, or I thereabouts. The youth serving him would have been about the same age, but but the two groups at church here that I know best are the youth group and the elders because we spend the most time together. And I would, if a, if a young person was to come to me and ask for advice, I would tell them to go seek out one of the elders, or if it's a young lady, one of the elders' wives perhaps, and talk to them. Not only to talk to their peers, but seek out some wise counsel. Who we receive advice from and whose advice we take has significant consequences for our lives now and later. That was true in Rehoboam's day, and it's true in our own day as well. We could also take a lesson in properly judging a situation before we enter into it. This is particularly true when it comes to the decision to follow Christ. Jesus speaks about this himself when he, when he talks to his disciples about what it's going to take to follow him, about carrying the cross of Christian discipleship. He says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. It's good in all of our decisions in life to look far enough ahead to the consequences of them to make wise decisions, but that's particularly true when it comes to following Christ. There is a cost, 
have to decide whether the cost is worth it. Because there is a reward, and I'm telling you, the reward is worth it. But like Rehoboam, sometimes you give up a little bit to get a lot. You may give up comfort and security. You may give up the, the favor of the world. But you gain the kingdom of God. But you need to count the cost in advance. Those are good points. But I don't know that they're the main point. In fact, I'm sure they're not the main point. Because the author's main point is this, and it's his main point again and again and again, that God always keeps his word. That God never changes his mind. When God has spoken and made a promise through his prophets, whatever he has promised will come to pass. You, you can't stop him. You can't throw obstacles in his way. You can't change his eternal plans. You can't work around his perfect plans. God will always, always, always keep his word. But sometimes he'll use very strange things to keep his word. Rehoboam is a very strange tool in the master's hands, isn't he? He's a fool. Who would expect God to use this kind of a fool? Solomon's son. Who would expect God to use him to accomplish his purposes? But he does. He uses Rehoboam to move the story of his people forward to the time when the great king, who is Christ, will come. It's true elsewhere in the scripture as well. We can think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. We read this in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul had some sort of prevailing issue in his flesh, which caused him great discomfort. Maybe it was some kind of chronic disease. Maybe it was something like kidney stones or bad eyes. I think the Lord didn't have him tell us for a reason. The Lord would like us, I'm convinced, to be able to look at Paul's thorn, which was given to keep him humble and focused on the Lord. The Lord would have us look at Paul's thorn and see whatever it is in our own lives keeps us humble and be able to appreciate it, however uncomfortable it may be. You may find that hard. Sometimes God's providences are hard. You look at whatever it is that afflicts you in life, whatever kind of trauma has been given to you, and you say, isn't this an effect of sin? Isn't this part of the curse of toiling and frustrating labor? Isn't this part of the thorns and the thistles of a futility that God has laid on the creation? How can God use this in my life for any good? But he does, doesn't he? He could use Rehoboam for good. He could use Paul's thorn in the flesh for good. Paul's thorn in the flesh kept him humble. Paul's thorn in the flesh kept him focused on his mission. And we, I suspect the vast majority of us, if we were to trace our spiritual lineage back to Christ, it would go for the vast majority of us right through Paul. And aren't we glad the Lord kept Paul humble and focused on his mission of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles that one day, 2,000 years later, we would believe. God uses incredible things, things that we would never think to use for wonderful 
purposes and he uses our weaknesses to draw us to Christ, to keep us dependent on Christ, and to remind us that this world is not our home, at least not our final home, but that we long for a kingdom that comes with perfection, that we aren't satisfied until we are there. God moves us forward oftentimes with our greatest weaknesses. But you know, of all the unusual instruments that God could use for his purposes, none of them surpasses the nasty, splintering Roman cross upon which the Son of God was killed. Isn't that the oddest of things to use? Isn't that the strangest of God's providences? That was sin, wasn't it? That was the greatest of sins. That was the ugliest of sins. That was the very epitome of sin. If kicking your neighbor's dog is a one on the sin scale and Adam eating the fruit is a 10, crucifying the Son of God is a 100. It doesn't get any more terrible than killing God's Son through the torturous death on the cross. It isn't that exactly how God ultimately keeps his word and redeems his people. God keeps his promises to Eve and to Abraham and to Moses and to David and through all the prophets. God keeps all of those promises in and through the cross. The most unusual and unexpected instruments often work out for the greatest good. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad to have a God who can even use the ugliness of a cross? in his perfect plan. That brings comfort. And speaking of comfort, again, from Ralph Davis, he says something I think is very helpful. He says, contrary to our fears, human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. I think that bears relation to my sanity. Foolishness did not die with Rehoboam or with Pilate or Herod or the chief priests. Foolishness is alive and well in our own day. You can go online and take a survey, and they'll ask you for your gender, and there's ten options. God made them male and female, right? It's, It's foolishness, and there's all kinds of other confusions of that sort. And consider the proverb as well. The proverb said, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I don't know about you, but I have been subjected to the full vent of a fool's spirit in the past. If you go on the internet, you go on Twitter or Facebook or the comment section, which is where scum and villainy resides in the comment section of any article on the internet, you go there, you see all kinds of fools giving full vent to their spirits without regard for anybody else or any kind of rules of decorum. Our world is full of foolishness. That's not even scratching the surface. Can our God work in that world? Is he big enough? Is he wise enough? Is he good enough? Can he keep his word? Can he keep his promises? Can he accomplish his plan for human redemption even in a world as sin-sick as ours? The answer is yes. A million times yes. And that's what the author of Kings wants us to see. David's kingdom is torn apart just two generations later. 
all the people split. There's the threat of violence. His grandson is a colossal failure, and his people are going to end up in exile. And the author of Kings says that even through all of that, God is still sovereign, and he's still moving forward, and he still keeps his word. And God will keep his word to us as well. God will send Christ for us. He will bring his kingdom in its fullness. And we will be saved. Jesus said to his disciples something very simple, which we should commit to memory. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Will you believe? Will you have that hope? I hope so. It's true. It's true, you know. It's true. Let's pray. God, we look across this world of ours and even these lives of ours and we recognize there is plenty of mess and plenty of foolishness to go around. But then we look into this word of yours and we recognize that you are good and strong enough to work through all of it. That you will accomplish your purposes. You will bring your kingdom. And you will save us. So we give you thanks. Because you, the mighty one who holds the galaxies in his hand, has made us to be your people. And given us the comfort of knowing that you work out all things together